We are going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John this morning. Um, just so you're kind of aware of where this is headed a little bit, we've been in the Gospel of John for over a year now, and we're coming up almost to the halfway, basically to the halfway point in the book. Um, but once you get into John chapter 12 and 13, things start to slow down. What you really find out is while we've been hearing of these different stories of Jesus' ministry across the three-year period, when you get to John 12 and 13, it starts to now go, the whole second half of the book is really the last week of Jesus' life. I mean, John camps out on this week um, for half of his gospel. Um, So as we get into that portion where John starts to slow down a little bit, I might take a a, a break at that point and do another short little series on something else, Um, and then we may jump back into it. It probably just depends on the timing of when we do that other short series, because then we'll be on our way into Christmas and things like that as well. So just so you're aware on where we're headed um, in the series, but we are going to finish chapter 11 this morning. Uh, Last week we saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And really, we spent a lot of our time focusing in on the conversations that Jesus had with Martha and Mary before ever raising him from the dead. Really, him being raised from the dead is the last two verses. The rest of it is all conversations leading up to that. So we spent a lot of time focusing in on that, but we'll finish the last part of chapter 11 this morning. So let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we ask you to open our eyes that we might see and understand Jesus and you. That we would have our hearts turned towards you, that we would love you deeper and obey you more faithfully as a result of hearing your word. May we seek your honor and your glory here in your word as we study it and then how it how it applies to us as we try to live the life that you've called us to live. But help us to remember we can't do it of ourselves. We need your spirit in us to enlighten our minds and our hearts and to empower us to live this out. So may he be at work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There are four Avengers movies that have come out in recent years, if you've paid any attention to them, as, as they go into some of the later movies, the, the focus of the storyline narrows in on one specific villain named Thanos. Thanos is on a mission to obtain a power, the Infinity Stones, if you're familiar, that would allow him to eliminate half of the living creatures in the universe. He believes that the universe has become way too overpopulated. And he thinks he's the only one that has the guts to do what really needs to be done in order to rescue the future for everybody. And in one of these moments of describing this plan, he makes this quote. It's a small price to pay for salvation. Now, if you didn't know the context of this quote coming from an Avengers movie, you might easily think that it came right out of our passage this morning. Jesus has been an ongoing problem for the religious leaders. 
The Pharisees have over and over again sought to question him and even tried to arrest him multiple times. All of his signs and teachings about who he is and who, what his relationship to the Father is contradict so much of what they think is true that they just want to get rid of him already. Well, the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead was the last straw. We see this morning that the display of power that Jesus shows us, the power he has over death itself, leads the Jewish leaders to make the final decision that we have to eliminate Jesus. He must be killed. To them, it's a small price to pay for salvation. But what we also see is that the elimination of Jesus is going to end up being a much more world-changing moment than these religious leaders could have ever imagined. So let's jump in our passage this morning. John chapter 11 We're going to pick up the last two verses from last week about Lazarus being raised just so you grab the context of what just happened. So we're going to start in verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So while we look at this passage as a whole, and we know already as Christians how incredibly powerful the death of Jesus is going to be, I think it's helpful for us to slow down for a minute and consider what's going on in the mind of the religious leaders here. Because John includes a story for us here that most the other Gospels don't include, right? We know that they made this plot in the other Gospels, but nobody else includes this moment here of this conversation amongst the religious leaders. I mean, most of this passage, apart from the little side note that John gives us of Caiaphas didn't know what he was really talking about, other than that little side note, most of this passage is consumed with the conversation from these leaders 
And what resulted in that Jesus began to kind of keep a low profile, and then all of these Jews, as they came for Passover, began to look for Jesus because they had been told to keep an eye out for him so that they could let the religious leaders know. But what we see with these leaders, particularly with the words of Caiaphas, is that they are driven by a desire to protect themselves. So you see your first point of the outline. When driven by self-protection, you will end up eliminating Jesus. These Pharisees, we have to remember, these Pharisees didn't get along with the council that they're meeting with in the story. Notice here in verse 47, we see three groups of people. The chief priests, the Pharisees, and it says they gathered the council, which the council was a group of Sadducees. All three of these groups didn't play well together. It wasn't smart to ever put them in the same sandbox. They didn't agree with each other. They were constantly fighting with each other about things. But when it came to Jesus, especially now that he's raised Lazarus from the dead, they can come together to figure out a solution. Because they're all driven by the same motive, self-protection. Notice what they all say in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If Jesus is allowed to continue in his ministry, surely he's going to grow in popularity, right? We already saw at the beginning of this passage, it says many believed in him. We don't know whether that belief was genuine or not, because we've seen that flip-flop back and forth throughout the Gospel of John. But at least at this point in Jesus' ministry, there's a lot of people that seem attracted to him. We can at least say that. And they're worried if Jesus is allowed to continue to do these many signs, that he's going to gain more popularity. And remember, what do the Jewish people think the Messiah is going to do? start a war with Rome. Now, the Jews hope that the Messiah gives them victory because that's what's been promised, right? They, they picture this military vic- victorious Messiah here. But yet, these religious leaders expect something different. If Jesus is allowed to continue in his popularity and attract more people and starts a war, they expect Jesus to lose the war. They think Rome is going to win, remember? They don't think Jesus is the Messiah, So they expect that Rome is going to win the war, and then what happens? Rome is going to come away and take their place, which is most likely a reference to the temple, right? Very important to these religious leaders. And they will take away our nation, all of Israel, right? Israel's underneath Rome at this point, but they've had their freedom to be able to worship at their temple and kind of live life in a general sense normal. They're not their own nation. They're still conquered by Rome, but they're at least allowed to operate somewhat normal. But now they're afraid that that's going to be lost altogether. And if the nation's taken away, if the temple's destroyed, what happens to the religious leaders? All their positions are gone. They have nothing left to stand on because they're not allowed to operate in their religion anymore. Their temple's going to be destroyed. Their priestly and religious duties will no longer be needed or have any sort of influence. Ironically, what happens a few decades later after they kill Jesus anyway? Rome comes and destroys their temple in 70 AD anyway, so good for them. But the point here is that they were driven by self-protection. The point here is that everything they were deciding to do was based of protecting 
themselves, their self-interests. Look at how Caiaphas says it in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas comes to the rest of them and says, You guys, you don't know anything at all. The answer is quite clear. One man's life is a small price to pay for salvation in order to save our self-interests. Now, John gives us some more insight on what Caiaphas says, but after John's side note, that's really what carries on is what Caiaphas said, right? They make a plan to kill Jesus. Jesus lays low for a while. People gather together for Passover. They're asking, is Jesus going to show up? Because they told us to make a report if Jesus does come. And on a much smaller scale, we all make decisions like this all the time, don't we? Just this last week, Sadie and I were walking around town, and we came across, of course, one of those many places where the sidewalk isn't level. And Sadie tripped over it and fell down, scraped her knee. Not much blood or anything. I mean, she was fine. We kept walking. We went to the park and played, and she, she came home later, and later on decided, I think I need a Band-Aid, right? Which, no big deal, right? But then, of course, who else wanted a Band-Aid? Albert comes and starts pointing at his knee, right? No scrape on his leg, but she had one, so he should have one too. But it's a small price to pay, isn't it? Give the kid a Band-Aid. But I also wonder how often we can do this with Jesus in our own lives. Not that anybody in here would agree with the Jewish leader and say, we want him dead. But do you ever find yourself sacrificing Jesus for the sake of your own self-interest or self-protection? Maybe you have friends or co-workers that you know aren't believers, but you get along with them quite well, so you don't want to risk your friendship, so when you have conversations with them, we're just going to put Jesus in the corner and kind of throw a blanket over him and not talk about him. Or maybe your family has an incredibly busy schedule with school or activities or jobs and who knows whatever else is going on. So while you know as a family we're supposed to study God's word together and pray together, you say, well, we'll just let Jesus slide down our schedule until we have time for him again. Or maybe it's even a protection of your physical life with our situation going around with COVID. We've seen this across our nation with churches in the past 18 months. Churches saying, sure, we'll meet on Sunday mornings, but fellowship, evangelism, showing hospitality to our church members or even to our unbelieving neighbors, we're just going to continue to put those on delay. Now hear me rightly, I'm not saying we should live in ignorance, okay? I'm not saying we should act as if there's no illness, Okay, I'm not saying that we don't make use of some of the things that God has blessed us with. But what I am asking is, have we begun to value our own individual physical lives more than we value Jesus? Let me share a quote from Charles Spurgeon for you. Spurgeon was a pastor in the 1800s. 
and he was the pastor during multiple cholera outbreaks. And this is a quote from him in the midst of one of those outbreaks. All day, and sometimes all night long, I went about from house to house and saw men and women dying, and oh, how glad they were to see my face. Now listen to this. When many were afraid to enter their houses, lest they should catch the deadly disease, we, who had no fear about such things, found ourselves most gladly listened to when we spoke of Christ and of things divine. Did you catch it there? When many were afraid to enter lest they should catch the deadly disease, we, the Christians, the pastor, who had no fear of such things, would find himself gladly listened to. He wasn't ignorant of what was happening. He called it the deadly disease. But he actually believed that death was not to be feared. Because he actually believed what Paul wrote in Philippians 1. To die is gain. It's to be present with the Lord. Do we have any concept of that in our Christian lives, especially right now in the midst of COVID going on, that our Christian lives are not just to be put on hold because this world has proven itself to be full of sickness and death, which, by the way, it's been full of ever since sin entered the world back in Genesis chapter 3. Do we really trust God to have control over our lives? The sovereignty of God is a question we have to contemplate when it comes to prioritizing either our self-interest or prioritizing Jesus himself in our lives. In fact, John even includes a little note here on God's sovereignty for us. That's your second point. The elimination of Jesus did not originate at just this moment. Now, you might say, well, of course not. The religious leaders had... It's been an ongoing process, right? They've been trying to seize him this entire time. But what I'm saying is the idea of eliminating Jesus did not even originate with the Jewish religious leaders. It actually originated with God himself. Notice what John tells us in verse 51 here. Everything Caiaphas says, he did not say this of his own accord. But then it goes on to say what? He was actually prophesying. So while while Caiaphas says, one man, it's okay for one man to die for the sake of all these people for this nation, he wasn't saying it of himself. It was God giving him a word to say. God already knew the plan to eliminate Jesus. Jesus already knew the plan for himself to be eliminated. Look back at John chapter 3 in Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus himself from the get-go in his ministry is talking about the cross, that he's going to be lifted up just like the bronze serpent was. Or, in fact, if you want to skip all the way back to the Old Testament, let's look at Isaiah chapter 53. This is a popular portion of Scripture many of you might know, but let's just read two verses. Before Jesus was ever born, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a prophecy about Jesus' death before Jesus ever takes on flesh and enters our world. Or how about Genesis chapter 3, when the promise is made for Eve's offspring that the serpent will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. It's always been part of God's plan that he was going to send his son to save us. God knew exactly what was going to happen. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. They both knew that the father was going to turn his face away from the son, that those who believe in the son might not have to perish for their sin, but may have eternal Life. Now, this is hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? It's hard for us to imagine God's sovereignty in the midst of tragic situations. But I think it's often because we can lose perspective. If I were to just simply ask you, what is the one most painful, horrifying death that's ever been experienced? It has to be the death of Jesus. He not only died a death on a cross... But as he hangs there, he says, his father has forsaken him. The separation between the father and son is the separation all of us as human beings should have for all eternity. But it was placed on Jesus. So Jesus is having a physical death and a spiritual death as he hangs on the cross. If that death is the worst death that any of us could ever imagine was still God working in the midst of it. Why would we ever think that any other tragedy we face is outside his hands? Amen? And it's in this elimination of Jesus that we actually find out we're given a better protection than we could ever attempt on our own attempts at self-protection. While Caiaphas thinks that killing Jesus will provide him political salvation, right, and allow him to keep life as he knows it, God actually uses the death of Jesus to provide an entirely different type of salvation. Your third point on the outline. The elimination of Jesus provides you the salvation you really need. Right? Caiaphas has in mind only an earthly substitution. Trade the physical life of Jesus for my own physical life, and for the life of my fellow religious leaders. But John reveals to us here that what he says goes way beyond what he actually meant. Look again at verse 50. He says, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Caiaphas says one man should die for the people so the whole nation wouldn't perish. Then John says he's prophesying about Jesus dying for the nation, but there's this switch here that happens. We've seen it many times already in the Gospel of John when Jesus is talking. This switch from the earthly to the spiritual. There's this Switch over that happens. It's clear that Caiaphas and the religious leaders are talking about a physical salvation, right? A physical health, a physical rescue from Rome. But John says it's bigger than that. 
Because John says Jesus is going to die for the nation and, verse 52, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now we're going to look more in verse 52 here in a moment, but just pay attention to that one phrase, the children of God. Jesus' death, his substitution, is done for those who are children of God. That's not just a rescue from Rome anymore. That's a rescue from sin. In fact, we've already seen John talk about children of God. Look back at John chapter 1 and how he describes them. John chapter 1, starting in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who are the children of God? Those who are born not from blood, not from their own will, but those who are born of God. Those who respond how to Jesus? Those who receive and believe in Jesus. The elimination of Jesus was meant by the religious leaders to be a political savior. But it ends up being a soul savior. When Jesus dies on the cross, as he takes on the wrath of God meant for our sin, those who are born again, born of God, are transferred from being enemies of God to now being children of God. From those who were once far off and distant from God to now those who have been brought near and adopted by God. From those who were once hostile to God to those now who have peace with God. And it's all done through Jesus as the substitution for us. It's not by religious efforts, but by a complete surrender from us to the one who already surrendered himself on the cross. The whole point is this. The earthly protection that you seek, whether it's in protecting your reputation by having approval from other people, or whether it's protecting your life of wanting this feeling of satisfaction that you're living out the American dream, or even the attempt to keep yourself from physical death in a world full of sicknesses, none of these things provide the salvation you really need. In fact, all of those things are futile in comparison to the salvation of eternal life that we have in Jesus. Let me ask you this. What do you think would be better right now? To die and be with Jesus or to continue on this earth with hope and earthly securities? Let's look at how Paul says it in Philippians 1 real quick. Philippians 1, verse 21. already quoted part of it, but we're going to read a couple verses here. For me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire 
is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. To live is Christ, to die is gain. His desire is to depart and actually go be with Jesus. But to remain in this world is more necessary because he has people around him that he wants to serve and point them to Jesus. Do we have these similar feelings ever in our own minds and hearts? That our sole purpose in being in this world is to serve Christ, is to point others to Christ. That's it. And if up to you, your desire would be to leave and go be with him. Trust me, my friends, I know it's not easy. So much of our hearts want to protect the things in this life, don't they? I don't want to abandon my family in death. But the reason I don't want to abandon my family in death is because I want to be here to be used by God to point my family to Jesus. It's not because of some hope and some earthly security thing. It's not because I just want to have a long life just to have a long life. It's because I want to be used by God to point my family to Jesus. I want to be used by God every week, every day, if possible, to point every single one of you here back to Jesus. If there was no option for me to serve this church or serve my family and point people to Jesus, I would say, take me now, Lord. I would. This world has absolutely nothing that I want other than to help other people see Jesus. And I'm not saying that to to boast my own ego. I'm not saying I never struggle with these things. I'm just saying deep down in my heart, I want my desire to be the same thing that Paul says here in Philippians 1. I'm not saying you're never going to wrestle with it. But what I am saying is your desire that you wrestle with to stay in this world should always stem because you want to serve Christ in this world. Not because you have some hope that you're going to be successful at a job or you're going to have good friends that like you or you're going to have a long life with lots of happy family memories. Your wrestling match should be between two things. I want to be with Christ and I want to serve Christ. Amen? Because one day, sooner or later, we see the fulfillment of what John tells us here in the rest of verse 52. That God will use the death of Christ to gather all of his children together. That's your last point on the outline. The elimination of Jesus gathers all of us scattered into one people. And I'll keep this point short. This truth should give us perspective in our place in human history right now. And give us perspective as to where of all of human history is headed. Look at what verse 52 says. Not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus dies not only for the nation, but to gather all of God's children who are scattered across the world. This is a reminder for us that us sitting in this room right now, here in Indiana, in the United States of America, are part of the scattered nations. That one day we're going to be gathered from all of human history to be brought back together with all the other nations. 
It's so easy for humans, especially those of us in America, to view our lives, our nation, as the center of the world. We live as if America has always existed and that it's always going to exist. But in reality, we're just one group of thousands of scattered people groups that are spread out across this world. In the timeline of history, we are just a speck, a dot in the moment of human history. We should feel so small, so small in comparison to the rest of the world, in comparison to the rest of human history, and how much smaller when compared to God who created all of it. But that also means something else. The smaller you are, the smaller you recognize yourself to be, the more you are overwhelmed with thankfulness when you realize even with how small you are in the timeline of history, God still sent his son graciously to go to the cross for you. And it's not just a reminder of where we are right now, but it's a reminder of where we're headed. Let me just give you one glimpse of it here with Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, all saying one thing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is where human history is headed. This is what our hearts should yearn for. We should so desperately, with everything in us, long to be seen this day. We should be on our knees praying and asking God to use us to save people from every tribe. And also asking for Jesus to come that we might be gathered together, as we're told is going to happen. Does this have any hope for you? Does this future worship with all nations prompt you to live any differently from day to day? Let me illustrate it here this way at the end. If one day you decided to just up and leave your job and your house, what would happen? People might try to find you, but eventually what? They'd have to begin to live as if you weren't coming back. We'd even say that your job would have the right to do certain actions, right? Like hire a replacement. But what if you promised someone that you were coming back? They would hopefully, joyfully anticipate your return, even if it took you years. We as Christians have to stop living as if Jesus isn't coming. We were told to live in anticipation, to keep our lamps burning, to stay awake, to stay alert, waiting for that day. Our hearts are meant to live in the present with joy, knowing that one day it's all going to be seen in an even greater light than what we could know to be true right now. His death will gather all of God's children who are scattered and who are eagerly awaiting for him to return. Amen?
Let me just finish with two questions for you. First, do you recognize your own tendency to eliminate Jesus? When it comes to certain aspects of your life, whether it's kids, work, friendships, COVID, your self-interest leads you to put Jesus on hold for a moment. You still might come to church, you still might pray during the week, but you still have certain parts of your life, certain days of the week where it seems like Jesus is non-existent. It's not because he's absent, but it's because we've eliminated him. We all do it, whether we want to admit it or not. But we first must recognize it and admit it if we want anything to change, which then leads to the second question. Will you abandon the protection of your self-interests to run to the eternal salvation of Jesus? My friends, right now we live in a world where you can turn on any screen and you're seeing two things. Save yourself. Save your community. But what kind of salvation are they talking about? It's not what Jesus offers. I would say 99% of your media stations don't believe in your Jesus of the Bible. It's a salvation of this world. It's a salvation of your physical life. Make sure your physical life lasts as long as you possibly can. In fact, it's exactly what Caiaphas and these religious leaders were seeking after. Sure, kill Jesus if it means our own safety. Don't let that be true of us. We have to abandon self-protection. Not in ignorance, not in foolishness, but in agreeing with what Paul says. To live is Christ, to die is gain. While we have a whole world saying, save yourself, we should be the one group, completely different from the rest of the world, singing what we just sang as our last song. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. One day, all who belong to Jesus will be gathered together to worship for all eternity together. While you wait for your Savior to return on that day, will you on this day forsake your self-interests that you might live for him? Let's pray together. Father, we